think writing is a form, it's a healer, and I think it is a counselor. It And it, my books teach me as much, maybe more, teach me more than they do the reader. I think the Lord gives me my books to educate me and transform me in ways I can't even fathom. Hey, it's Billy, and I'm glad you're here. On today's episode of Start Small, Believe Big, we get to hear from award-winning author, Laura France. She is a Christie award-winning author and is passionate about all things historical, particularly the 18th century. According to Publishers Weekly, France has done her historical homework. Her stories often incorporate Scottish themes that reflect her family heritage. She is a direct descendant of George Hume, Wedderburn Castle. Correct me later if I'm wrong. Berkshire, You're right on. <laughs> Berwickshire, uh, Scotland. I said English. Scotland, who was exiled to the American colonies for his role in the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715. He settled in Virginia and is credited with teaching George Washington surveying in the years 1748 to 1750. What a heritage. Proud of that heritage. She's also a daughter of the American Revolution. When not at home in Kentucky, back and forth in the years before the pandemic, she and her husband now live in Washington State. Today, we welcome Laura to talk about her newest novel, A Heart Adrift. In this novel, she whisked readers away to a time fraught with peril on the sea and in the heart and this redemptive romantic story. More with Laura in a minute, but first I want to thank you for listening. All of the Start Small Believe Big episodes, my social media links and email are all on my website, billyjouse.com. I would love to hear from you. I'm also going to um, put all the links to Laura's books and how to stay in touch with her in the show notes. So please check those out. Now, let's not resist that small beginning, but persist in the next thing God is calling us to. Welcome, Laura. Well, it's wonderful to be here. You know, I always love talking books and you and I get on like a house fire. It must be our <laughs> Southern roots. <laughs> so, I think both of our Southern accents are going to sort of go down that Southern drain while we're talking. I already hear yours getting stronger, girl. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for being here. So tell us a little, I want to start off just a heart adrift. Tell us a little bit about it because I'm excited about another book from Laura France. My first book I ever read of yours was The Lace Maker, and I loved it and fell in love with you. And I don't know how many of your books I've read since. How many books oh. do you have in total? You know, right now, published books, there's some lying in the drawer still that will never see the light of day. Yeah. I'm off to 13, although I've just finished number 14, a Scottish novel, and I'm researching number 15. So I was just telling you that we authors tend to be, so you know, we leapfrog ahead, three books ahead yeah. of readers. Yeah. But I'm thrilled to talk about A Heart Adrift. You're my first podcast <laughs> for this release. So it's it's just especially thrilling to dwell a little bit longer in, a, I say, the sea-salted, chocolate-laden world of a heart adrift. <laughs> I love that. So tell us a little bit about it. Where, where did the idea come from? How, you know, what research did you do? What is the book, you know, the heart of the book? Well, it was kind of like standing on a cliff and, and preparing to jump off. I felt like I had no parachute because 
when it, there's a whole world out there of maritime history, you know, we're talking sailors, sea captains, ships. There's, if you've ever done any research on um, sailing vessels, there are numbers of them and it's the centuries. I mean, it adds up. You, you have all this overlapping, pardon the pun, you know, this wave-like history of, um, I was writing in a time before there was a colonial American Navy. So it, that was especially tricky. You know, uh, we went into the Revolutionary War without a Navy. That's, you know, developed in time. But um, anyway, so the start of the French and Indian War, I have a sea captain hero. Now, rewind 50 years, I'm like age seven or something. And I was uh, watching the old film. Do you remember The Ghost of Mrs. Muir? Oh, yes. We're about the same age. So we'll <laughs> yeah, there you yes. go. So we have a lot in common, including yes. uh, film credits but um th that uh, the ghost of mrs mirror as a child you know i think they say her formative years are age one to five but seven's in there too i watched that movie and somehow it stuck you know it, and i re-watched it a couple of weeks ago oh my word it's just as delightful you know seven is gonna view it very differently than 50 something yes. and but i found it absolutely enthralling and delightful. I wouldn't have changed a thing. And it it actually has even gotten really high marks from today's movie critics. Well, anyway, I think that germ of a fascination at age seven, uh, I after you know that movie, I sat down and my mother said, wrote a story about ships. And I had like the encyclopedia open and she came in and I, she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a story about ships. That was my first attempt at anything like that. So I think, you know, you just Fast forward to now, I'm getting my sea captain hero, which is half French, half Scottish. Captain Henri is his name, not Henry, Lennox, and, um, or Lennox. And then I have a chocolatier heroine. So I uh, gained a lot of weight <laughs> writing this novel because I sampled a lot of chocolate. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> I know, it has its perks. But so I have this wonderful sea captain hero who is truly a godly hero. And then he is reunited after this failed love affair with this chocolatier heroine in Virginia uh, 10 years later. So it was a challenge. The research you ask about, uh, I had to get try to get my maritime history right because it's very complicated. There was a whole world of blackjacks, they call them, um, Native, you know, I mean, Native American seamen too, but, um, you know, just black seamen, Negro seamen who were fabulously um, skillful. Some captain their own vessels. I mean, we have no idea, most of us, I think, about that history. Now, of course, you have to beware the information dump. You don't want to dump all your research on the readers. So you, I think it's been said, we historical fiction authors read like, or write in like 3% of what they know and leave the other 97% out, um, lest it read like a textbook. But anyway, that's kind of the uh, heart adrift in a little, in a nutshell there. Yeah. I loved writing 
it's fascinating. It, you know, that knowledge that you go into or that, that deep research to gain that knowledge and to draw off of that knowledge and then to dump 97% of it and only write about that is just fascinating to me. It's heartbreaking. (laughs) Yes. You want to, um, there's so much you want to tell, but you really have to distill it down to what, what the reader needs and hope you get it right. Um, the most fascinating facts, like, um, I don't want to do any spoilers, but like the tattoos, the, you know, they were tatted men and in, in a way before tats became popular, these, these sailors, you know, and that's in the novel, my, my wow. first tatted hero, you know, and she takes, Esme takes note of that at a, at a, a supper at a ball. And, um, anyway, it's just a gradual getting, getting reacquainted after being apart. Yeah. And it was fun to write two more mature, mature people as characters. Yeah. This time. Tell me about your writing process. I actually read somewhere that you start novels in longhand. Do you still do that? I do because you know the research bears it out. I know I'm all, I'm in awe of friends who who write novels on their phone. I mean, I oh, actually I have some yes. that do, and I'm like, am I that much of a boomer? Because I can't even contemplate that. Um, a texting is relatively new to me. I we don't have television, so you know, of course, you can access pretty much anything on your computer. But we threw our TV out a few years ago, and we raised our boys without TV. So. You know, it um, it just you know is is kind of a different different world that you come into. You know, when you write that kind of a book, I do do longhand. It it switches on some creative mechanism that they say enables you to write more deeply or more. Um, I don't want to say empathetically, but there's something about the pen and paper that I never get on a cold keyboard, I call it. And that might be because I was raised before devices and I never engaged that way. Maybe, but I, I agree with you, Laura, that there's this, I don't know. I feel like I write a, a lot of notes and stuff. Do I actually write a manuscript or a, you know, my nonfiction that way? No, but in writing it, there's just something of the flow from the head, the head through the hand. The hand. It's like, I don't know. It's this Holy Spirit moment of, okay, Lord, it, you're guiding you me. Know, it is. It truly is. I know. And it's crazy because it caught, takes me months. But when I research any novel, including this Acadian novel I'm starting, um, just started researching, I write all my notes out longhand. From the research books. I mean, we're talking legal pad after legal pad. But the funny thing is, you know, it's Holy Spirit inspired, like you said, because when I write thank you notes and I do try to keep snail mail alive, Mm -hmm. when I write even one or two thank you notes, my hand gives out because I have like some arthritis in my hands. And I'm, I used to be a very, have a nice writing hand, which is getting compromised the older I am. But my hand just kind of freezes up after a couple of thank you notes. Never does when I'm writing. Is it never? Amazing? I can write hours. Is that not crazy? That is amazing. You know? It is. It's just, true. Yeah. It's, it's so true. It's a God thing yeah. from start to finish. Yeah. It, I don't know how writers work it up who don't rely on the Holy Spirit. I don't, yeah. I can't imagine that process. Yeah. <laughs> Me either. There's so many times. Do you have that experience where you're writing something and then when you go back to edit it, you read it and you're like, 
Oh, I don't remember writing that. Oh, did you know I was just thinking about that? That's fascinating. You said that the other day because I've got my copies of Heart Adrift and um, I opened it and I don't ever reread the book because to me, it makes me want to rewrite it because I still see things I wish I could change. And I, it's a the perfectionism yeah, problem, yeah, I guess. Uh, but, I but you're so right. I, would re- I read some passages or dialogue and I'm like, I don't think, did I write that? I mean, that's pretty good. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't want to say that in a just no, deceitful way, but I'm like, no. where did that come from? You know, I don't remember writing that. I don't, I just, I can't imagine, you know, yeah. what, what happened there? I was like in a huge state where I just, yeah. you know, but I think it's so Holy Spirit inspired a lot of the time, you know, when there are days when you come to the keyboard and you're not uh, feeling it. Yeah. But honestly, I could, writing is the only thing that makes me not want to eat. Oh, I, I yeah, actually, that's true. Eat. Yeah. And I can, I would rather write than sleep, eat anything. Yeah. So, well, it's funny yeah. you were talking about writing things out longhand. Um, I, when I first started writing, um, my first book came out and then I started going to people that knew more than me and they would tell me what I was doing wrong. And mm-hmm. one of those was writing things out. You should have this, these notes and use this app and that app. And I kept mm-hmm. losing stuff. And I, I don't think I have a problem in my memory, but it's like, I know where mm-hmm. those papers are. I do not yes. know where those notes mm-hmm. in my computer are. So. No. In that, I had to start discerning what was right and what was wrong in that beginning of my writing. Did you have the same experience when you first started writing or did you just walk up to your computer and just type out the first draft of your novel and it was it? Well, you know, I always begin, <clears throat> excuse me, with the name. I have to have character names, period appropriate names. If I don't have a name, I can't write a word. Wow. And um, I always have to have like this Acadian novel this morning, I sat down and there are just some plot points that have come to mind since I've been researching that I want to put in this novel. And sometimes that's pretty unusual for me. Sometimes all it takes are names. But once I have the names, I just kind of run with it. You know, there are pansters and plotters. Yeah. I'm more a pansters than a plotter. I don't hand in. Ravel is good about not making me hand in detailed synopsis prior to writing a book because. Well, after 13 books, I believe oh. you trust you. <laughs> those of us, those of us worried. have to turn in everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a paragraph at this point suffices. Thank you, Ravel. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm just thrilled. <laughs> yeah. So. So have you, when you first started writing, did you just sit down and write or did you, how did you, what was your process like the beginning of your writing career? If you can remember back 13 books. Well, I can, you know, even I think it was probably 17 years ago. I spent 10 years writing my debut novel, The Frontiersman's Daughter. But I have several novels prior to that, that I wrote like a couple of novels every decade, you know, in college and my first job and then raising my boys, I didn't want to take too much time away from them. Though I think, you know, you can do that well as a mom, but I couldn't. So I actually set it aside for five years when they were really little to just devote myself to them. I, you know, like I said, it's not for everybody. Some women can do it all. I wasn't one of them. And uh, part of that is probably because I'm not a real efficient. I don't do things online. I didn't have a computer when I had my debut novel, it was given to me, a cast-off computer, 
like 17 years ago. And then my brother came from the mission field. He was in Ecuador at the time and reformatted everything on the computer for me so I could actually have it on the computer. And so I had a lot of that kind of help early on. You know, it was no, it was a God thing about the computer that somebody donated that to me. You know, we, I just, you know, I had never been to a writer's conference. I didn't have an agent. I, you know, kind of like you, I had to put it all in place rapidly because you got a contract quickly for your first. And I got a contract, I think within eight months and I, I didn't want to publish, but I knew that was God's gift and calling. And so I had tried to be obedient to it. Um, it doesn't look anything like I thought it would. You know, I came in the back door. I didn't know anybody. And so um, it's been quite the ride. But definitely to be able to um, connect with a publisher early on like you did, it's it's clearly, you know, it, I think it's a God thing. It's yeah. we're walking in what he wants us to do. The window is short as I get older and I see these up and coming young authors. I think, you know, I've it makes it more meaningful because I have a time, such, you know, I'm writing for such a time as this. And then that window is going to close. I don't know when he does. And then other up and coming people who are already have arrived, a lot of them, you know, will be uh, the Christie Award winners and uh, the best selling authors in, in future. So it's just like a wave. Yeah. And you ride the wave as the Lord allows you to. And then you, that's that you say thank you (laughs) and move on to whatever maybe heaven or whatever yeah so that's a lot of life isn't it because in a as a mom as a new wife you know all the things that when you're starting something new and and you ride the wave until yeah you know now I'm an empty nester my wave has gone and (laughs) the kids still come (laughs) back but we're empty nesters and it's it's a we are too it's a different season I don't know about you but I thought oh you know I sometimes when they were little and I was so tired and you know nursing the babies and then bringing them up and boys are a joy but boy they're busy and you had three I had two boys so you know then when they leave, it's like this this whirlwind. It just gets really still. And I've also thought, you know, I'll have a lot more time. And well, it's really interesting. Do you? Not really. You know, I have a lot less energy <laughs> than I did when I raised them. Yeah. But, um, you know, do I have more time? No, because other things come in that uh, occupy and demand and call for your attention. So. There, there's a little more time, but it's a different kind of, uh, different kind of nest, yeah. you know? That's where and, my first book came from, Laura, Making Room, was because I oh, thought I was going to have all this time on my hands with my kid gone, and my right. kid's gone, and and my husband said I had the right hand syndrome. Every time anybody would say, can you do this? I'm like, yep, I can do it. Yep, I can do oh. it, you know, raising my right hand. So, yeah, you can fill your time up a lot with that. So, I you, understand you that can. also. You yeah. made a lot of people happy, but <laughs> maybe by saying yes, but I was maybe depleted yourself. Yeah, tired. Yeah. What a wonderful title for a book. Yeah, I mean, it making you. the room. That is amazing. It I'm was, gonna, yeah, the subtitle on that one was doing less so God could do more. 
that's fabulous. Oh, it was a precious book. And it led me into, there was just one small section in, I think it was chapter two that talked about the internal and external distractions. And the one that people wanted to hear about the most when I went to speak were the internal distractions. So my next book is Distraction Detox, and it is Release Emotional Barriers, Restructure Priorities, and Realize God's Best. That is amazing. Do you have a release date yet? 2-22-22. So yeah. I mean, how can you forget that, right? It's a great (laughs) release date because I'm terrible with remembering dates. I always That's why my husband and I got married on New Year's Eve, so I wouldn't forget our anniversary. Oh, that's funny. Well, my son, in keeping with that, got married on 4321. I love so, so that. They'll never really forget it. Never forget it. Never we forget it. So uh, tell me, I always ask this question of fiction writers, and I, I f- sort of feel silly asking it because it's like, who's your favorite child? Um, but do you oh. have a favorite book and or a favorite character, either in A Heart Adrift or, uh, you know, or another book that you've had? Is there one um, character that stays with you or one book? Just through all of them, the, the, the ones that I've written. Or A Heart Adrift, um, if that's the freshest. Or A Heart Adrift. You know, as hard as she is to like sometimes, um, the heroine's sister, Eliza, who is Lady Drysdale in the novel. Okay. She marries a peer, an English Englishman who is titled. Um, Eliza to me is fascinating because Eliza is kind of my fleshly nature. I see so much in Eliza that is like me. She loves beauty. You know, she she um she gravitates to toward you know, lovely, expensive things. Her mind is she's very worldly. Now I'm thinking that's killed the Lord, the Holy Spirit has helped put that part of me to death over a long time. But Eliza is kind of, I think, all of our fleshly natures on display. And she's not hiding it. She's flaunting it. And Esme, your sister, is a wonderful, I hope, balance to her. And, you know, when I finished writing A Heart Adrift, I thought this story is not just about a sea captain and a chocolatier this is a story is a tale of two sisters and you know it was interesting to me because I don't have a sister I have a brother a younger brother and I've not had over my lifetime because I'm I'm solitary person I love solitude it's hard for me to make friends my people laugh and say oh you you everybody you know people love you but really no because um I'm very friendly but I don't, I don't um, make time for friends and relationships. And the Lord's taught, been teaching me about that. So sisters are new to me. And um, anyway, the, the friendship theme, I think, is in there too. But um, I think sisters will maybe enjoy this novel. And people, women who have raised daughters might enjoy the novel. Because it really is a tale of two sisters. That's um, great. And do you have a favorite book in all of your books? That would be hard to say. I think the reader favorite might be my second, Cordy Mar Little. And we didn't even get in the hero's head. There's no perspective. You know, the POV is is just from the heroine. You don't include the male. You know, usually in a most novels, you have the heroine in one chapter, her viewpoint, and the hero in the next. And then you just play off that which is really makes more sense but in this 
second novel and my first, you just have the heroine's perspective. You don't get in the head of anybody else. Um, and so my my editors at Ravel, the third novel said, we want you to get inside your hero's head. So I thought, oh, I get to climb into the head of Colonel McLean in The Colonel's Lady, which is another, I do love that story. It was unique. My first time in my hero's head and what a hero. He's a redheaded handful. Yeah. And yeah. so to write him was fun. And my current hero, um, Captain Lennox, Henri, he, um, he's kind of a bit of a mystery too. You know, he's, he's been around the world, but he's not worldly. So go figure, you know, yeah. he's, he's a worldly in a different way than Eliza, the sister. Um, Esme is far more grounded. Um, but anyway, no spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so excited to read it thank you I just I am and I'm honored to to be able to interview you on the podcast because I told you before you know I love your books and I love you as an author and it really yeah I love that the lace maker introduced us yeah I do love that story and that cover they Ravel did such a beautiful job on you know yeah my first cover without the hair, the heroine on it, pretty much yeah. the only cover without the heroine on it. When I tend to like that, I yeah. love landscapes and beautiful yeah. 18th century gowns like that. You know, so, love the gown. But, but this new cover is just amazing. I think that yeah, it is. Kudos beautiful. to Ravel's new art director for that. That's awesome. Well, I want to ask you as we wrap up, I want to ask one last question. And that would be, I probably should have given you this beforehand. I don't think it's that hard, but if you need time to ponder, I can give you all the time in the world. What small beginning have you resisted only to let go and allow God to take you where he desired? You know, that's such a wonderful question. It would really be writing. I hate to circle back to that, but, you know, I, it was a dream I kept in my heart from a, since childhood. I was not good at sports. I wasn't, I was a fail at math. I I was a fail at musical instruments. Remember those awful flutophones? Some people just soared. I sank fast. I remember yeah. my dread of going to the trailer that they had lessons in because I just couldn't get it. And, but I knew there was something magical about reading and writing. So that was my small, small thing, small beginning that developed into a big dream. I never lost it. There was some sort of heavenly magic I thought about writing and reading early on. And it stayed with me. And even though I, you know, once I said, okay, you know, well, you gave me the gift of writing. How do you want to use it? Because I'd held on to it for 40 years saying, I don't want to go that direction. This is a gift for me. It's my own secret world. You know, it was, it's gotten me through hard things like my parents' divorce and my grandmother dying and, you know, just things that we all, all these losses. I think writing is a form, it's a healer. And I think it is a counselor. It, and it, my books teach me as much maybe more teach me more than they do the reader. I think the Lord gives me my books to educate me and transform me mm-hmm. in ways I can't even fathom. Um, totally but makes me more, more committed to Christ mm-hmm. and more able to share him with, I could never get up in a pulpit and preach. My brother's a pastor missionary and does it all the time, been all around the world. And um, I, I can't, 
I can't have that kind of ministry. Mine is quieter in a way. I mean, but people read it around the world, your novels, but my novels. So I guess it's, but I can never stand in a pulpit and preach. So this is my contribution, Holy Spirit inspired, not something I could do on my own or even want to do it. He has to enable me to even want to do this because I just don't have it in me. So wonderful question. Well, wonderful answer because without the Lord, I don't know how people get through this life, no less do the work that they do, whatever that work may be, you know, that Holy Spirit inspired work that we do to, to shine the light of Christ. And it's a gift and I'm thankful for it every day. And it's taken, you know, I'm sure both of us down roads we never envisioned, introduced us to readers and people who have enriched our lives in countless ways, um, enabled us to travel and do things we never dreamed of. And, and I think there's a quote that says, you know, God is in the business of making us more authentically ourselves. And I think when we give ourselves, surrender to him and the gifts he's given us, we become more ourselves. We become more authentically us. And, you know, I, as I get older, I just want to hear well done, mm. good and faithful servant. Although I can't, I don't think I'm there then. I, I, you know, I can't imagine even hearing that because who of us in our best efforts ever can, you know, can ever fathom even having that said to us, well done, yeah. you know, all our righteousness, filthy rags, pretty much, but somehow God redeems it. So true. It's such a beautiful story, isn't it? You're such it a beautiful storyteller. So thank oh, you. Thank, thank you for, you for reading. I'm excited. We're going to count down to mine and yours. Yes. <laughs> this yes. is exciting. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show today. But before we go, I want to let everyone know about the daily devotion I send out Monday through Friday mornings. Join our amazing community of humans taking a little time each morning to dig into God's Word. When you sign up for Morning Sunshine, you will receive a little encouragement in your inbox each morning. The devotion starts with a scripture, then a short teaching, and ends with a quick prayer. We'd love to have you join us. I promise no spam, just Jesus and me. You can find the link in the show notes or on my website, billyjouse.com. And if you have a friend that the podcast or the devotions may bless, please let them know. I pray this podcast has encouraged you to allow Jesus to work in and through your life, one step, decision, and action at a time. Thank you for joining me and Laura today on the Start Small, Believe Big podcast. I hope you're back next week for another episode. Now, let's not resist that small beginning, but persist in the next thing God is calling us to. Be blessed, my dear friends. Until next time.